G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're looking for your insights into the raging controversy, including what's happening in the Middle East. Since 1948, Israel has suffered three invasions on multiple fronts, including wars with Palestinian militias and hundreds of terrorist attacks. Yet Israel has emerged with more territory rather than less. While its permanent preparedness for war and the marvel of Israeli innovation has turned it into the most formidable fighting force in the region. Our guest today is Alex Rivchin, a prominent speaker and writer on the Arab-Israeli conflict. He writes for leading publications throughout the world, including the Daily Telegraph, the Spectator, Fox News, uh, the Guardian, the National Post, the Australian, the Age, and he's a regular commentator on Sky TV. I saw him on Sky News recently, and he's also uh, on many different radio stations. His first book was called The Anti-Israeli Agenda, uh, Israel uh, Inside the Political War of the Jewish State. Uh, this book is being launched by the Queensland Jewish Board of Deputies, and we can't mention the venue because of security issues, but listeners will be able to find uh, an RSVP form on the Facebook page of the Queensland Jewish Board of Deputies. So welcome to the program, Alex. It's great to have you with us today. How are you, mate? Thank you. Great to be with you. Now, you're based in Sydney at the moment. How long have you been based there for? Well, uh, a long time on and off. So um, I was born in Kiev in the Soviet Union, but I lived in, uh, in Sydney for, for most of my childhood and adult life, uh, aside from five years spent in London where I was practicing law uh, and also advocating for Israel through the Zionist Federation and uh, had a stint in Israel as well, writing for a think tank there. But uh, Sydney is very much home. Now, I've had the privilege of uh, going along to Israel on on tours twice before, and uh, I just love Israel. Um, There's actually a a team from our radio station heading over there tomorrow uh, to to take a tour of a whole bunch of people over there. Uh, It's something we're very passionate about here at Vision Radio, to equip and educate people uh, on uh, the beautiful holy land of Israel, and to also... Uh, explain about the uh, the political instability that we're seeing there. Now, your book, The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War on the Jewish State, tell us the heart behind that book. So the book looks at the new phase in the war on Israel, which seeks to do through political means what war and terror could not, which is to isolate the country, turn it into an international pariah, um, sever it from the other countries of the world, in, a, in order to bring about its isolation and eventual collapse. Uh, it's the latest phase in the war of annihilation of Israel. And um, as you mentioned in your introduction, since Israel's formation in 1948, it suffered three full-blown invasions on multiple fronts, and it suffered uh, many smaller wars, uh, devastating terrorist attacks. And the aim of these was, of course, to annihilate the state. And with the failure of that, with the rise of Israel as an economic and military force. The conflict hasn't gone away. It's merely shifted to other forums. And we now see this third phase being the political phase. And this has infected all of the world's most important political forums, whether it's the United Nations, 
trade unions, a lot of non-governmental organisations, um, even the church to an extent. And this is how the war is now increasingly waged. It's certainly been uh, big news uh, in recent months where uh, Donald Trump has uh, announced to move the embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. What are your thoughts on that? Well, look, it's the right move. I mean, Jerusalem has been the beating heart of the Jewish people for 3,000 years. It is the capital of Israel. Uh, Tel Aviv, as fond as I am of that city and its beaches and cafes, it is not and has never been the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is its seat of government. It's the location of its parliament, uh, of all of its government ministries. It's where foreign dignitaries go to meet with their Israeli counterparts. It's entirely logical to recognize it as the capital of Israel. Um, and one of the arguments against recognition has been that it somehow forecloses on a two-state solution. And it, it in, in no way does that. So the statement by President Trump in announcing that the embassy would be moved, he said very clearly and unequivocally that this doesn't prejudice the outcome of a two-state solution. It's still for the parties to determine the final borders of the two states. Uh, there's nothing in the announcement or in the move of the embassy that would preclude the predominantly Arab neighbourhoods of eastern Jerusalem from one day forming a Palestinian capital. So this has never been the barrier to peace. Um, and moving the embassy there merely recognises what is the reality. Um, and for peace to be achieved, it requires the parties to negotiate in good faith, to make concessions, um, and to recognise the legitimacy of the other. And what are your thoughts about Australia moving our embassy there? Do you think it'll ever happen? I think it will. I think in time, you know, once the dust settles from the US move and, and nations of the world realise that, um, you know, the world keeps on spinning and the sky hasn't fallen in, uh, and they'll look at this as well. And, you know, other countries have already looked at this. Uh, the Russians have spoken about it. The Czechs, South American nations have looked at it as well. And I think in due course, other countries will follow suit. Um, it's something that we as the Australian Jewish community would certainly want to see happen. Um, but to be honest, there are more important issues at stake, and we're far more concerned with seeing uh, closer government-to-government -government relations seeing Australia support Israel in international forums, which it has consistently done. These are the, really the more crucial things rather than the symbolic ones. Now, you talk about the uh, full-scale political assault against Israel. Uh, you know, Israel is God's chosen people. We need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, praying for Israel. It's something us as Christians are very passionate about. Uh, but tell us a bit about this political assault. Is it more significant than the three times Israel has been under attack, uh, having faced three invasion attempts. Is, is this political assault more, more, assault more significant than that? It's a very good point, and in some ways it is, because Israel is now virtually impervious to a traditional military assault. It is um, quantitative, quantitatively and qualitatively stronger than all of its enemies put together in a conventional military sense. Um, but that doesn't mean that the existential threat to Israel has gone away. And what this political war seeks to do is, is defame the state, uh, turn it into a pariah, uh, cripple it financially, um, culturally remove it from the rest of the world, um, affect its academics and their ability to engage with their counterparts abroad, create this sense of isolation. Um, there's this view in the, in the Palestinian and the pro-Palestinian world that's existed really since the 1970s that Israel exists 
only because it has the support of the West. And if they can gradually chip away at Israel's support, if they can discredit the concept of Zionism of Jewish national self-determination, then eventually Israel will collapse. So while the threat of political warfare uh, isn't as dramatic or perhaps as pronounced as the military threat has been in the past, uh, it really can't be underestimated. Uh, it's a long game. It's a long-term strategy. But its ultimate ga- aim is to bring about the destruction of the state. And it's a very dangerous game, and it must be challenged at all levels. And, you know, here at Vision Radio, we're obviously very uh, pro-Israel. We're always praying for Israel. We're always educating people and talking about uh, these issues. But the secular media, there is so much anti-Israel sentiment. Uh, do you think that's ever going to change? It could change. Um, I'm not all that optimistic about it. The, the media, or a lot of the media, has an ingrained culture. And uh, it's not the result of one or two journalists with a certain bias or a political perspective. It's more institutional than that. So for change to occur, it'll take a, a great deal of time. But as Seth Franzman looks at in, in my book, in the chapter on the media, uh, which looks at this very question of why the media is so firstly fixated and obsessed with the question of Israel and why it gets it so wrong. Um, it looks at the gradual shift in media coverage of Israel and the conflict. And for a while, it was quite sympathetic. So when Israel was viewed as the underdog in the conflict in the early decades of the state's reformation, media coverage was quite sympathetic. So the New York Times would publish op-ed after op-ed supporting this plucky Jewish state against implacable Arab foes. But the stronger Israel has gotten um, and the more the world has become conscious of the Palestinian question, the more sympathy is shifted away from Israel. And for various reasons, including the fact that it's the Holy Land, which captures people, people's imagination. Um, there's this constant obsession with covering the conflict. And the media doesn't always do the best job of showing the complexity of the conflict. It looks at mere body counts. It looks at who's stronger and who's weaker in a particular stanza of the war. Um, and that doesn't favor Israel at the moment. But it's very important to work with journalists, to show them the land, to show them the complexity of the conflict. Um, and also for members of the public to call out media bias when they see it to hold journalists to account. That's the only way we'll see any sort of a change. Mm, Absolutely, I agree. And uh, we're going to open up the phone lines now. Our guest today is Alex Rivchin, who is a prominent speaker and writer on the Arab-Israeli conflict. We've got uh, Joseph from New South Wales. Have you got a question or a comment for Alex, mate? Oh, hi. Yeah, just uh, uh, I've got a question, but the comment being that um, I think part of the reason why the media is so uh, anti-Israel is that they come through, uh, a lot of journalists, uh, media types come through uni with a media journalism degree, and we know that the uni campuses are very left-leaning with their Marxist theologies. And also uh, a a spearheading is a lot of the anti-Israel sentiment in Australia is, is unfortunately, Australian unions. And uh, as a church, we're, we're... we have this incredible, um, you know, voting power, and I just want to challenge all the uh, all those in the church to get real about our faith. You know, let's not be be uh, mesmerised by the um, Christian entertainment industry. Let's be real about this. And come election time, let's vote for born again Christians leaders. Let's not vote for for for, for people with, with Marxist and 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 union uh, uh, mentalities when it comes to this, because there's there's a lot at stake. Alex, your thoughts or comments on uh, on Joseph's comments. Well, thank you, Joseph, for those excellent observations, and I agree with you on both fronts. Firstly, regarding campus, uh, you're quite right. Campus has 
long been a hotbed of anti-Israel activity, anti-Western, anti-capitalist activity. And while people tend to mature out of their kind of sophomore mentalities, um, the toxicity, the extent of the anti-Israel bias which they encounter really does remain with people. It's difficult to shake. Um, And a lot of people's first contact with the Arab-Israeli conflict will be through universities. Um, and that will have a lasting impact on their worldview, and that does then come through their, their journalism reporting. So it is very important to support our students to stand up in campuses to ensure that a variety of voices are heard on campuses. Uh, in 2015, I took one of the contributors to my book, Colonel Richard Kemp, who some of you may be familiar with. Um, he was the commander of British forces in Afghanistan. I brought him to Sydney University to speak about his experiences as a soldier. And within minutes, the lecture was stormed by anti-Israel activists with megaphones who accused Kemp of child killing and genocide because of his support for Israel, attempting to shut the lecture down. And it's that sort of behavior uh, that really conditions a lot of the minds that come through our university campuses and then end up as opinion leaders in various forums, including journalism. And as to the second point, the unions have also been a problematic forum, Um, but it's complex. Some unions rightly stay out of international affairs and stay out of the conflict or maintain a position of neutrality, but others have a more activist spirit um, and have been very firm in their anti-Israel views, particularly when you look at a lot of the trade unions in the UK. Um, Some of them have adopted very radical anti-Israel positions. They've aligned with pro-boycott groups, groups that regularly malign Israel as being an apartheid state. And you now see the consequences of that in the British Labour Party. Um, The trade union movement in the UK is very closely affiliated, of course, with the Labour Party. And we now see the output of all that, the outgrowth of that, in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. So it's really vital that people who are union activists remain in those forums and do their best to challenge that anti-Israel bias. Thank you so much for your uh, your call, Joseph. God bless you, mate. God bless Israel. Thank you. And also joining us on the line, we have Ursula from New South Wales. Have you got a question or comment for Alex? Yes, good good morning. Uh, May I just uh, quickly thank the previous caller for uh, what he said, especially about the voting for our values. I mean, I'm a Christian Democratic Party candidate myself, and... uh, so we've been saying this for years, and I'm hoping lots of people are listening that people should vote for their values. And the Australian Greens, of course, are also a part of the boycott against Israel. Um, but my my comment was, uh, I've just recently joined a group from Israel, Lev Hayolam. Lev I'm not sure how exactly to say it in proper Hebrew, but <clears throat> they're a group that is circumventing their BDS movement uh, by actually offering people to directly buy from artisans and producers uh, from the heartland of Israel. And um, I've been very happy with my products and very happy to be able to support Israel. And I'm just wanting to tell people that. And also to ask uh, Alex, does he know about it? Does he uh, agree with what they're doing, that sort of thing? Alex, what are your thoughts? Sure. Uh, So firstly, thank you for for your support and thank you for your excellent comments. I'm not familiar with that particular group, uh, but... Based on what you've described, I wholeheartedly support them. Um, I think it's vital to not only combat BDS by exposing its racism, its extremism and its dishonesty, um, but also doing something proactive and doing something 
more productive by actually supporting Israeli industry and supporting Israeli producers. Um, and that should happen across all fields uh, in terms of industries and artisans, as you've described, but also Israeli culture, um, Israeli academics. The, the deeper the person-to-person, business-to-business and country-to-country ties between Israel and Australia and Israel and the world, uh, the stronger Israel becomes. And um, I'm very grateful that there are people like you, Ursula, that are being so proactive in showing their support for Israel. Love it. Thanks so much, Ursula. Great to talk to you again. God bless. Great. God bless you too. Bye. And we've got Steve from New South Wales. Have you got a question or a comment for Alex? Yes, I have. G'day and g'day to your listeners and Brother Alex. Um, Brother Alex, um, I've watched... I'm a, I'm a senior person. I'm what's called born again... But I claim progress. I don't claim perfection. I have my stuff-ups, my bleeps, my blunders. My hope is in faith. Um, and we've, all over our Western media, we see the wars, and it's been going on now for so long. I believe, I remember President Bill Clinton came in with the Oslo Accords, trying desperately to bring about a two-state solution, which is very much pushed by the West. Um... You mentioned unions. I've been a trade unionist myself, because I. But for me, unionism is about lifting the disadvantaged and the poor up out of poverty, and not militant stuff that causes harm or hatred or hurt to people. My question is this: uh, I, I wondered myself why President Bill Clinton's Oslo Accords failed, and in my study to gain an understanding of what's happening in the Middle East and. I don't understand the hatred, the incessant hatred that's gone on so long. And I came across something in my ignorance through called the 24 Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And what I read, I found shocking. Are you aware of this? And is this what's blocking a two-state? Because I'd like President Trump to succeed in his efforts to bring about peace in the Middle East, which is destabilising the whole world. I think President Trump is genuine about bringing about faith and hope and end the hatred that's gone on for yeah. so long. But is, that, is this 24 Protocols of Zion, which I had to look up, and I was just shocked at what I read, is this what's blocking a peaceful solution, a two-state solution, there's 24 protocols of the elders of Zion, can that be put aside and something be done about this incessant hatred that's gone on now, not just for 70 years, which is prophesied in the Bible, but is that what's behind all this killing and slaughter of innocent children, men and women, you know, that are unarmed, can President Trump succeed where President Clinton failed in bringing about this two states and end the incessant hatred and bitterness that's gone on now for thousands of years? Thank you what very much, uh, ends, Steve. Alex. Steve, we, we've, got to give, uh, we've got to give Alex a chance to respond. Alex, what are your thoughts on that, mate? Well, firstly, thank you, Steve, for your observations and for your very kind words and for your support. You raise a lot of very interesting points then. I'll try and deal with most of them or, or all of them. Firstly, regarding what you referred to as the 24 Protocols of Zion, I haven't heard that term before, but 
there is a very famous document known as the Secret Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and I wonder if that's what you're referring to. And you've really nailed something there, because that document, the origins of it, it's an anti-Semitic forgery which was created by the Russian secret police around the time of the revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. And basically the document purports to be written by senior members of the Jewish community throughout the world, and it talks about a supposed Jewish plot to control banking, control the media, and to take over the world. And it was exposed as a forgery virtually as soon as it was written, and yet its ideas took hold. Why did they take hold? They took hold because they tapped into something that was real. People have this view of the Jews as being corrupting, as being nefarious, all-powerful, wicked. It's classic anti-Semitic mythology. And even though the book was debunked, its ideas persist. And particularly in the Arab world, um, the secret protocols of the elders of Zion are bestsellers. People read this book believing it to be real, wanting it to be real, thinking that this reveals the true character of the Jews. And this goes a long way, I think, as you point out, Steve, to really showing us why there is this conflict. It's not to do with a settlement here or a settlement there. It's not to do with a particular policy of the government of Israel. It's to do with this fundamental hatred of the Jewish people, a view by many, tragically by many, in the Arab world that the Jews are an illegitimate people, that the Jews have no national rights and no rights to land in the Middle East, land which is our ancestral homeland, the land from which our culture and our religion came forth thousands of years ago. And until there's an acceptance that the Jews are legitimate, are a people with national rights, there are people who are living freely uh, and peaceably and lawfully in their own home, and they're not going anywhere. And until this is realized, I don't think we will have peace. It doesn't matter whether it's Donald Trump trying to advance the peace process or Bill Clinton and the Oslo Accords. Um, those fundamental obstacles to peace uh, will always be, be there until that mentality can be changed. Um, as for the Oslo Accords, so we're now at the point of marking um, an anniversary of the Oslo Accords uh, that was signed in 1993. And the Oslo Accords were really a watershed moment uh, in relations between Israel and the Palestinians that really gave forth a lot of hope that there would be a two-state solution. And the Accords gave autonomy to the Palestinians in certain areas uh, in which they hoped to create a state, mainly the densely populated Palestinian areas in Gaza and in parts of the West Bank. And they were hoping to achieve a final resolution of the conflict within five years of signing of the Accords. Now, what has been the consequence of that? So on the surface, the Accords, again, as Steve points out, have been an abject failure in the sense that there is no two-state solution. Um, 1,600 Israelis have been killed since the signing of those accords. We've seen the Second Intifada. We've seen numerous wars, terrorist attacks throughout the land. But in many, way, in many ways, the Oslo Accords were also successful in that they led to cooperation between the two parties on security, uh, on environmental issues, um, on economic issues. And those, those areas of cooperation have held and have, in fact, expanded in the years since the signing of the accord. And Alex, before we get back into the topic today, uh, just uh, give our listeners a bit of a, an insight into where are we in the Hebrew calendar right now. I've always loved uh, learning a bit more about this topic. Uh, where are we in the, in the Jewish calendar? Well, actually, Matt, we're in the holiest time of the Jewish calendar. We're in what we call 
the days of awe, or in Hebrew, the Yamim Noraim. Uh, and last week we celebrated Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of the Jewish year. Um, and it's a very festive and uh, reflective time for the Jewish people. We have the blowing of the Shafar, which is the ram's horn, to announce the new year. And uh, next week we have Yom Kippur, which is a day of atonement. It begins on the evening of, of Tuesday evening and goes until the following evening. Uh, it's the most solemn um, and observed day in the Jewish calendar where we ask God for forgiveness for our sins and we ask to be inscribed into the Book of Life for another year. So it's a very special time for the Jewish people right now. I remember on my uh, recent visit to Israel a few years ago, it was actually Yom Kippur, and everything was closed. You could walk down the main mm. street, and it was just so peaceful, such a beautiful day. And uh, it's wonderful to uh, to learn about the, the rich history and, uh, uh, and to under- get an understanding of the Jewish calendar. And I remember uh, I actually uh, had a friend who lent me a, a shofar recently and, and tried to teach me how to, to blow it. And it's actually quite difficult, but I did manage to get a decent sound out of it. And this Jewish friend of mine said, "Oh yeah, so far so good." <laughs> Thought that was quite good. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it is wonderful to talk about all things uh, to do with Israel. If you've got a question or a comment, Alex Rivkin, the author of a book, "The Anti-Israel Agenda," is our guest. Call now one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. We've been chatting a bit about the, uh, the the media and universities and unions. And such a so much anti-Israel sentiment that we see, but I'd love to know your thoughts, Alex, about the evangelical Christian support. Uh, what has that done for the Jewish people over recent decades? It's been highly significant. I'm very glad that you brought it up because this is something that means so much to the Jewish people. I can't even begin to, to properly relate it to you. We're a small people. We're numerically few. Uh, we're electorally fairly insignificant for that reason. Uh, and because of the way that we're maligned and slandered, whether it's classic right-wing anti-Semitism or whether it's the manifestations of left-wing anti-Zionist anti-Semitism, we often feel attacked and we often feel alone. And seeing our Christian brothers and sisters, particularly in the evangelical community, stand with us and being very vocal and very outspoken and very activist supporters of Israel and the Jewish people, it means so much to us. And I, I remember I first had contact with the evangelical community when I was living in London and I was a writer there and a, a spokesman for the Zionist Federation. And the Christian community were the best activists. They would always come to protests. They would come from far and wide, from the north of the country. They would come all the way down to London to stand there and show solidarity with the Jewish people. So it really, really means so much to us. I can't even begin to tell you. And, you know, the reality for me, uh, as a, I'm a pastor of a church in, uh, in Brisbane too, Alex, and the reality for me is that, you know, I've been pastoring for 12 years. I did Bible college. I've, you know, been in youth ministry for many years. I always had an un, a bit of an understanding that Christians should support Israel. Uh, but, and it wasn't until I actually first went to Israel on a, on a tour a few years ago and been involved with Vision Radio, which is, uh, obviously we, we play a lot of programs. We do a lot of interviews highlighting this topic. And the reality is a lot of evangelical Christians don't understand the importance of standing with Israel um, from a spiritual level or from a political level. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's our job to educate people uh, about the importance of, uh, of standing with Israel, uh, particularly in these times, because uh, w- would you say uh, it's gotten worse for Israel recently or, or would you say things are improving? It's, 
it's a complex reality for, for Israel because in ways things are getting better uh, and Israel is becoming militarily stronger and more self-sufficient. It's becoming economically very powerful. It's a hub of innovation that's envied throughout the world. Um, Israel's diplomatic relations, particularly with the developing world in Asia and Africa, are expanding. And you can look at all that and you can say that things have never been better. But at the same time, anti-Semitism has never gone away. Uh, it's been around for thousands of years and it will never go away, unfortunately. And seeing now the shift of anti-Semitism away from right-wing ultra-nationalist movements uh, towards the left-wing, uh, what we're seeing in the Labour Party in the UK, uh, you know, it, it gives very little cause for optimism. And, you know, we're proud of what Israel has achieved, the strength that it has amassed over the years, but we're also wary of, of, the, of the reality of the very complex political situation around the world, the threats that come from different groups, um, and so, you know, we need to be wary of that. Now, I'd love to know your thoughts about Australian foreign policy. Uh, you know, the, uh, th there's different political parties that have different focuses. Um, tell us a bit about uh, what you think of our current foreign policy, and in particular the Labor Party. Do they have a, a different uh, platform to support the Palestinians? What's, what's, the, uh, what's the details there? So the position of both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party has for many decades been to support a two-state solution, uh, which was originally prescribed um, by the United Nations General Assembly in November 1947, which called for partition of the land and the creation of two states for two peoples. So Doc Ebert, who was a towering figure in the Labor movement, was instrumental. He chaired the ad hoc committee um, of the General Assembly that recommended partition. So Labor had this very long tradition of supporting Israel, the creation of the state, the defense of the state, um, and, and a two-state solution. And that really has maintained in Australian political and public life um, ever since. And both parties support Israel, support deeper relations with it, um, and support it in, in international forums. But throughout Israel's history, uh, there have been dips in support for Israel among various political parties. And at the moment now we're seeing a time where the Labour Party um, at a leadership level in terms of its shadow foreign minister uh, and its uh, opposition leader are very supportive of Israel. Uh, but there are certain activists within the party that are seeking to upend that traditional support for Israel and really radically shift the party to be a pro-Palestinian vehicle. Uh, and that's something that really causes a lot of concern to the Jewish community. Um, and we want to see the party maintain its unequivocal support for Israel as a key democratic ally of, of Australia and maintain a position of supporting a two-state solution. Um, and there are those within the party that would like to move away from that. Well, we are chatting with Alex Rivkin, a prominent speaker and writer on the Arab-Israeli conflict. If you'd like to call through and ask a question, call now, 1-800-316-316. And Cornet from Queensland is joining us. Have you got a question or a comment for Alex? Uh, yes, Alex and Matt, thank you for your program. Thank you for your words on Israel. Um, oh, shalom, shalom. Uh, I'm just uh, so encouraged by uh, Alex and what he's doing to highlight the importance of Israel. As a Christian myself, we look towards Israel 
Uh, I always advise my friends, if you not, want to know what's going on in the world, just look at what's happening in Israel. So uh, it is encouraging. Uh, one problem that I do see is that in our churches these days, uh, that Israel has not been uh, promoted as uh, we all know God's chosen people, that the spiritual Israel has taken over as Christians. And I think we should teach our children the importance of Israel. And that's why these, these tours and going back to the Holy Land is so important. And I think for us as Christians, we should promote Israel and speak about Israel and pray for the peace of Israel a lot more than we are doing. So, uh, But thank you very much for your um, work that you do. Uh, if it's a two-party or one-party, I know Benjamin Netanyahu has spoken out about the two-party um, we will look towards Jesus uh, as the coming Messiah. And I know as the, uh, the Jewish people will call out, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So thank you, Alex. Thanks for what you do. Alex, what are your thoughts? Well, firstly, thank you for those very beautiful sentiments. Uh, they really do mean a lot to me. And I think you're spot on in... Um, wanting churches to be more active in promoting Israel, in promoting the, the bond between the Christian people and the Jewish people, the importance of the Holy Land. Um, and for my part, I'd like to do whatever I can to help you in that. So if, if there's an interest in me speaking in any church anywhere in the country uh, to give my perspective on Israel and why it means so much to me as a Jew, um, I would welcome that opportunity. And I think that there's work to be done both by people like me from the Jewish community and also by Christian communities and, and pastors um, to show the Christian people the historic bonds between the Jews and the Christians and why we need to stand together in solidarity. Wonderful, Alex. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your call, Cornet. And joining us, uh, we have Chris from Victoria. Have you got a question or comment? Uh, just a comment uh, to Alex. Yeah, I just want to say, as Christians... Uh, you know, we stand on the word of God, and if someone, uh, you know, like they, they curse Christians as well as Jews because, well, we believe in the same book. So, I think like Jews, their main rallying cry should be, "God blesses those who bless us and curses those who curse us." Just the Abrahamic covenant, and you know, you should uh, say that loud and proud everywhere, like even in the United Nations and all the campuses, and uh, and say, you know, you, you curse us at your peril. You know, our God is the God of the plagues, the Passover. He's the mighty God, and you know, he, he said that. That is his word. So, and stand on it, yeah. Mm. Alex, any comments on that? Well, thank you for that. And, um, and, and it's true. Uh, the Jewish people and the Christian people, we have many common enemies in the world today. And uh, I think a lot can be said of us, of, of our two communities, by the enemies that we keep and by our friendships as well. Um, and I hope that this will encourage us to seek greater friendship and greater alliances between Jews and Christians in Australia and throughout the world. Thank you so much, uh, Chris, for your comments. And we've got Marion from WA. Have you got a question or a comment for Alex? Yes, thank you very much. Um, been privileged to go to the land of Israel, which was an awesome experience. Um, and personally, I don't watch mainstream media because it's so biased against anything reporting on Israel. Like recently there was um, unfortunately a young, not so young man that was murdered um, in Israel and I think it's very tragic that, um, oh, what am I trying to say, um, that 
it's so biased. The media is so biased against Israel, and that's why uh, I have um, on my Facebook. I'm pretty big on Facebook with sharing any news about Israel, updates about Israel, what is really happening in Israel, the true news um, of what's happening, um, and how the media are so biased against Israel. Um, yeah, and another program I'm involved in is called HIT, H-I-T. It's Hospitality for Israeli Travellers, which was started by a um, young man, Omri. He's got a name I cannot really pronounce, Jakovic, something like that. Um, but he had a talk here in Albany, and I joined up and uh, was privileged to host uh, some Israeli guys who came to Albany. Um, what it is is because um, what you were saying, uh, there's some bias towards Jewish people. So this is a program where they feel they can be come and be, you know, have hospitality and, um, yeah, it's great. It's a really great program. Um, so I'm really um, happy to be part of that. And thank you for your comments and your book, which is really good. Thank you so much, Marion. Alex, uh, any uh, any comments on that? Well, thank you so much, Marion, and I'd like to thank you for your involvement in our program. Um, as I said earlier, the more human-to-human contact we have, the more that Jews and Christians can sit down together and break bread and talk about our, our shared experiences and our shared destiny, I think the better. So I commend you for your involvement in that. Um, regarding your frustrations about the media, I certainly share those. Uh, but I think you ch- touched on a very important solution. Social media has really transformed the way that people gather news and, and inform themselves on the conflict, on Israel and world affairs generally. And people are more and more turning away from traditional media. They're seeing its biases and prejudices, um, and they're searching out, seeking out the truth for themselves. So people should be active on social media. They should project and amplify the messages they want people to hear. Um, It's a very important forum, and it's one area where we're always a little bit behind our enemies. So those who despise the Jewish people and, and despise Israel have been very savvy at at manipulating social media to project those messages using videos and and various other forms of content, and we need to get better at it as well. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marion, for your call. And joining us on the line right now is uh, one of our family members from Perth, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, have you got a question or a comment for Alex? Yes, I was saying that uh, uh, people believe in replacement theology, that is... uh the Jewish people are being put out and the Gentile came in, so the Jewish people got no place in the heart of God. Instead of knowing God put them aside for our benefit and that we need to support them now, people, churches, even some pastors preach on that. This is what makes it very difficult for the world to understand. Alex, what are your thoughts on uh, replacement theology? So replacement theology, this idea that the covenant between God and the Jewish people has been superseded or replaced uh, is really a, an, an anti-Semitic doctrine that emanated from sections of the of the of the Christian Church uh, as a way of really justifying anti-Semitic treatment by Christians. But fortunately, it's been overwhelmingly repu- repudiated, including by uh, successive popes, um, and it's really an idea that hasn't really taken hold. Um, in Christian theology, but but there are certain churches, there are certain segments of the Christian world where this idea is still being advanced by people like the Anglican vicar Stephen Sizer and others. And we've seen 
a particularly dark and nefarious stream of this replacement theology known as Palestinian replacement theology, where it's argued by pro-Palestinian activists that, in fact, Jesus was a Palestinian. He wasn't Jewish at all. So it's a way of really removing the Jews from ancient history, uh, removing Jewish ties to the land, and really doing that to support modern political claims by the Palestinian people. And it's something that, like all slanders, like all lies, it needs to be taken on uh, and debunked and challenged. And foremost, it needs to happen from within the church. It's really an internal Christian debate. And I know there are good people arguing against this, and I really hope they prevail. Well, Alex, it's been wonderful to have you as our guest today, and uh, we uh, just want to uh, thank Jonathan uh, for your question there. Hey, if you uh, do want to find out more about Alex's book, uh, it's called The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War on the Jewish State, and the book is being launched by the Queensland Jewish Board of Deputies. We can't mention the venue because of security issues, but listeners will be able to find an RSVP form on the Facebook page of the Queensland Jewish Board of Deputies. Alex, uh, thank you so much for your time today, mate. Shalom, shalom. Shalom. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you to you, Matt, and thank you to all your callers. It's been a real treat speaking to you all. Thank you, mate. God bless. All the best. God bless. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.